Our scripture this morning is Revelation 2, 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give to him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Thanks be to God. This is the third of the seven churches. We're nearing the halfway point, and this morning our church is in the city of Pergamum. Pergamum is a city it's roughly 30 minutes further north, or 30 miles further north of Smyrna. And it lies on a, on a hillside. And the modern city actually is down in the valley below. It's one of the more beautiful cities. And because it lies up on this hillside, much of the ruins of the city have been preserved. The, they remain. And they remain even as walls built up. We can see them. It was one of my... Um, favorite cities because of that, because of the views which it had and the ruins which are left. And because of these ruins, we know several things that were present in the city. The city had an assortment of specific temples or different temples. Some of the bigger ones included an altar to Zeus, a temple to Athena, and a temple to Asclepius, the god of healing. Um, so, and it's interesting with the Temple of Asclepius, they have all these remains of little clay figures of ears or hands or whatever body part people were suffering with. And it's to this church, though, that Jesus comes with the introduction, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, this introduction should call us back to John chapter 1 where Jesus is um, seen by John as 
the man who held seven stars in his right hand and had a sharp, double-edged sword extending out of his mouth, as verse 16 says. So apparently this is the way that the church in Pergamum needed to see Jesus. This is the Jesus which the church in Pergamum needs. What's interesting about this text, at least in the Greek, is that there's two main ways to describe the sword or a sword in the Greek. There's two main words. One is makarain, and the other is ramphaya. The word, the Greek word for the, the makarain sword, it's actually used in the Hebrews 4 passage, right, where it says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing even to the point of dividing soul from spirit and joints from marrow, is able to judge the desires and thoughts of the heart. And no creature is hidden from God, but everything is naked and exposed to the eyes of him who, whom we must render an account. That is the use of the, the, the short sword, the Greek word for the short sword. And that Greek often would be used also for ceremonial swords. Obviously, a sword always has the purpose of cutting, right, and slicing and separating. But there are different types of sword. And so this ceremonial short sword would be the standard sword. But that's not the one used here in the text. The sword here used is the uh, ramphaya, which would actually be a two-handed sword has nothing to do with ceremony. It's the type of sword with one purpose. When it's, when it's seen, it's seen for war, for action, for cutting and, and attacking. It's the difference between just a, a gun in today's language, right, and a machine gun, right? When, I, when you think of that, you think one means Business. One means war. And in some sense, this shouldn't surprise us that this is the weapon or the sword he is bringing. Because the next verse gives us good reason for it. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, I mentioned all those temples, and some scholars try to connect Satan's throne to a specific temple, right? And it is interesting that the altar to Zeus is, and it, it was actually moved to Germany. You can see it in a museum. But it is a large kind of U-shaped throne-looking thing. But I don't think that's what this is actually pointing to. I think what the text is pointing us to, what the text really is pointing to, because it repeats it, is that Satan had a foothold here. He keeps a stronghold there. He rules in the, the, the city of Pergamum. He has a presence and a ruling which is strong and strong enough to be murderous and to persecute the church of Pergamum. Verse 13 says, Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my favorite, my faithful 
maybe favorite, witness who was killed among you. In this, um, in this killed among you where Satan dwells. So not only does he dwell, but his throne is there. You hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. That's the commendation to this church in Pergamum. And what's interesting is it attaches this all to this faithful witness, Antipas. Now, church tradition says that Antipas died by martyrdom, but, but he was burned alive or boiled alive or cooked alive, apparently, in an iron bowl. That they would, they would do that, and then they would even design the bowl so that the screams within it would sound like mooing. But that's just church tradition. What I think is more remarkable and what the Bible points to, at least for the church of Pergamum, is that Antipas gets a very same title that Jesus gives himself, the faithful witness. The faithful witness is what Jesus will describe himself as when he comes to, when he speaks to Laodicea. But it seems that the place where Satan dwelled, he wanted to dwell alone. So he killed the Christians of Pergamum. It's interesting, last week our text had Smyrna, and Smyrna had the synagogue of Satan. Yet Pergamum has the throne of Satan. And I think that speaks and points towards the practice and the citizenship and the society, which is satanic for Pergamum. And it leads to... Well, and, and then there's the difference, too. Not only is there a, the, the synagogue of Satan for Smyrna and the throne of Satan for Pergamum, but Christ has a rebuke for Pergamum where he did not have one for Smyrna. My professor titles the Church of Pergamum in his book, he calls it the, chap, he calls it the Church of Idolatrous Compromise, and we see that compromise in verse 14. But I think it is remarkable to see that even before that, there is a hint of, of, of something, that, that, that Satan cannot exist, that evil will not exist, next to peaceably righteousness, next to innocence, next to, to purity. And so Antipas is killed. The faithful witness is killed. And you have to wonder, did the faithfulness of the church of Pergamum die with him? One way to ease persecution or to become more, to be be more accepted is to compromise, to blend and mix. Evil can handle a Christianity and a faith which is mixed. It can handle a Christianity that is like it. It cannot handle one that is pure. It can tolerate a Christianity that is Christian in name, but not different in practice than the world, than the culture around it. And so we see in verse 14, Jesus' 
Jesus' complaint or rebuke for the church in Pergamum. He says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now we shouldn't be surprised that the Nicolaitans are, are, well, we get three people there. We get teachers, and we get the people of the church, and then we get those who are not Christian, those who hate God and God hates, like the Nicolaitans. And in one sense, we shouldn't be surprised by the separation or the division of the Nicolaitans. But then we have the people and the teachers. Now, many of us might think, was Balaam a man there at Pergamum? But uh, actually, Pergamum has nothing to do with Balaam. Balaam is a callback to the Old Testament and to a prophet or a seer who had um, involvement with Israel earlier on. Many of us probably know Balaam simply because of the story of the donkey, right? That speaks back to him. But Balaam has more than three chapters of writing invested in him. And for Jesus to reference Balaam would be to reference all that happens in these chapters. I'm not going to read all of them, but I am going to just quickly summarize them. And it's worth reading and seeing how this history plays out because this is what Jesus is pointing towards is happening again here in the church of Pergamum. When we meet Balaam back in Numbers, and it's going to be Numbers 22 through 24, we get the story of King Balak and the Israelites right outside the Promised Land, right? And uh, the, the, the pagan king is worried about the power of the Israelites. And so what he does is he, he finds some man of God, Balaam, and he tries to bribe him to curse God, or not to curse God, but to curse the Israelites, right? And what we get is a pagan king trying to set the God of Israel against Israel through a man. And it fails, right? But throughout all of that, we get the story of Balaam and we see his heart. See, the pagan king sends these, these uh, emissaries to him and, uh, and Balaam dialogues with them. He says, you know, stay here a night. And then when God says, do not, do not curse my people, right? He, uh, he sends them away, but it's a soft sending away so that they come back again. What you get is this man who, who has a knowledge of God, who sees God, who knows God, but is fighting against following God. Actually, what he wants is the world. What he wants is riches. What he wants is personal gain. And so when the, the king Balak comes back again with more, God says, this time you can follow Balaam, or you can follow Balak. And the story which we often think about is the donkey, right? And the donkey speaking back. 
its point is actually that Balaam's life was in danger. Because although, because God's angry with him because he's, he's dialoguing with paganism. He's dialoguing with sin. He's straying. And so that donkey turns away three times and, uh, and Balaam gets mad at the donkey and it each time is saving his life from the angel of the, do- the Lord who's standing there with sword drawn to strike Balaam. And then Balaam, in the next like two chapters, goes up on these mountaintops and he, he's supposed to curse Israel, but he blesses them because he says what God tells him to say and he, he doesn't break the rules there. And then the story of Balaam ends in chapter 24. It's touched again in 31, but what happens is Balaam blesses the Israelites and then in this underhanded, insidious way, suggests a way which Balak can make the Israelites turn against God or draw away them from God. So Balak, with this idea, this pursuit to try and turn their God against them, that fails. Yet what he sees or does or instigates or creates is the ability for the people to turn away from God. We see this then in Numbers 25. After this three chapters of the story of Balaam, it says, while Israel lived there, the people began to with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to sacrifice to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, I read that passage, and I know there was a strong word in there, right? And uh, I've thought about this, whether or not I should read it or not. But it's true, and it speaks, one, it's biblical, but it speaks to the heart, our hearts, and our Father's hearts, which are prone to wander, right? Yet I think there's a stronger word in there that we miss in the first reading. And I think it's the word yoked. Verse 3 says, So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. That's a stronger word. Yoking means to be connected with, to be interwoven with. As I thought about it and I thought about how they're yoked to Baal, I had uh, two illustrations really come to mind real quickly. One was from a book I haven't read in a very long time. I had to look it up. And it's, um, it's, it's C.S. Lewis's, um, and I think it's the, the prince in his, or the, the uh, I can't remember, I just remembered this scene. 
Um, it's the story of Eustace, and he falls asleep on this dragon horde, and then he becomes a dragon, right? I see some, hand, some heads. Yeah. And uh, eventually, Aslan comes, and he, he leads Eustace to a pool of clean water and orders him to strip down and jump in. And Eustace realized that Aslan means him to shed this dragon skin which has become part of him. And he begins to scratch off the scales. But with every time he scratches, he realizes that there's nothing more than dragon skin, more dragon skin underneath. And eventually, in despair, he has to ask for Aslan to help. And uh, the way it goes, it says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you but I was pretty desperate now. And the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right to my heart. And when he began pulling off the skin, it hurt worse than anything else I have ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as, as I thought I'd done it myself other, the other three times. Only they hadn't hurt. And there was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobby looking than the others had been. And he caught hold of me and he threw me in the water. And I had, and then, and I saw I had returned into a boy again. In this story with Israel and the yoking, they, they, they kind of lose who they are. They become yoked with pagans. And you have to ask, what does repentance look like? What does the solution look like when sin has become something you are yoked to? When sin has become something so interwoven with your life and your heart and your practice and your faith, and you're you. What is the solution? And I think it's in the sword. The sword of war meant to cut. With its greatest purpose, meant to cut. And to attack. And to kill. And to sever. Like a two-handed sword. And the story of Balaam and Balak... We see that the, the sins of Israel become more and more brazen. In chapter 25, it says, And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And then it says, it's just to, to illustrate just the audacity or the, 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 the complete or transforming that the sin had had, it says, And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. It's audacious sin. And it's, in so many ways, the sin of an Israelite who has lost his Israeliteness, right? 
Out of that we get the story of Phineas, who rose up and then ends up spearing the two. He's a man of action. And it's actually that action which stays God's hand from destroying Israel. There's a passage that says, so that I did not consume the people of Israel with my jealousy. Therefore, behold, I give him my covenant of peace. What we see in Jesus' call back to this story of Balaam and Balak and of Israel in ancient days is the story that God cannot and will not, righteousness will not be mixed with unrighteousness. Godliness and ungodliness is not a shade of gray, not something that moves on a spectrum, but is or is not, that there is a severing difference, a line of separation that is black and white. And that there is only peace with God when there's war with sin and with unrighteousness. So what am I saying? Am I saying we should go out and stab people, those who are unrighteous? No, but it's, uh, it's not a... In the CRC, I do not worry about an excessive reaction towards sin. I worry about a inaction towards sin, much like what we see in Pergamum. That is why Jesus is the one that has to carry the sword. In the CRC and in the Western faith, the Western Christianity, what I fear is more likely to happen than an attack against sin, than a war against sin, is that we indulge civility, that we avoid confrontation with sin, and we try and make amends or peace with it. We make peace with the sins that are in us, and we make peace with the sins that are in others, and in the sins that are in our church. And it draws us ever so slightly, ever so more and more, from true godliness, from what Christ calls us to. In one sense, we dialogue like Balaam did with paganism. Maybe not specifically the way he did, but we blend our lives with, with those lives that have nothing to do with Christ. We want to follow God in theory, but in practice, we want to give ourselves a pass. So take a moment and give yourself a heart check. Is there anywhere in your life this morning that you would be embarrassed to share? Is there something you need to cut out? Is there something that is drawing your heart, if you're honest, further and further away from Christ? Could it be personal? or professional, relational. Be honest about what is affecting you. And don't deceive yourself saying, 
that you affect it more. That can be a trick. For the church in Pergamum, with all those temples that I mentioned, we still see the ruins. There were, there were these, um, these uh, rooms where they would eat. And we actually have, uh, uh, they would have feasts, right? Think of it like, um, like a, I don't know, like a meal center or something like that. The word's escaping me. Um, and so it would be, be common to have your celebrations there. And we actually have, we have a, we have a copy of, a, of a, a piece of parchment with an invitation to an actual temple. And it says, it, it says something like, uh, I, blah, 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 invite you to come to the temple of, and I can't remember the, the goddess, but it was the goddess of the sun, for celebration of my daughter's first birthday. And you might think as Christians, right? Like, there's nothing wrong with the celebration of a first birthday. There's nothing wrong with those things. And yet in these temples, not only was there the, the food sacrificed to idols, but there was drunkenness, and there was prostitution. There's all sorts of depravity there. And the, the church in Pergamum apparently was dialoguing and interweaving, was participating in these things, and was foolishly being led astray to the point where God was against some of them, that God would have to come against them and war against them with the sword of his mouth. Now, we might not have temples like that. We do have TV shows. TV shows that are popular, that are full of violence or gore or pornography. We have Sunday sports teams and travel. We have all sorts of things that make the Christian life no different than life of the pagan, or are our Christian lives any different? Are there practices? When you're at the bar or the restaurant, do you drink as much as the non-believer? To all of these things, to this interweaving, this slow infidelity, Jesus says in verse 16, therefore, repent, meaning turn around, meaning change. No more tolerating. Cut it off. Repent. Whatever is making you sin, whatever is drawing you away, whether it be a false teacher or a false practice or a false thing in your life that is corrupting you, if it's pulling you away, repent. Cut it out. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I grabbed that story of uh, Aslan tearing off because it does a great job of portraying how when sin grows and grows 
and grows in our lives. And it does this subtly and quietly and slowly, but it also seeks to do it entirely. And we tend to think that a sin in one area, if it's, if it's just in your hand, will stay there or could be contained there or controlled there. I also thought of, for that illustration, in Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, he, there's, a, there's a man who has a sin that has to be burned off of him. And he says, I have it under control. It will be well-ordered. It won't do any more misbehaving. But that's not true. It's like an, an infection. It might start here, but it travels throughout the whole body, the whole being. The sins in our lives and in the lives of those next to us, they affect us. They steal from those we love and they harm us. And they harm or they, they hurt our relationship with God. So we, should, we, we must be cutting them out or attacking them. We must be at war with them with the same intentionality and preferably earlier on than before Christ does. As a pastor, even in my short tenure so far, I have had affairs come to light. I've had Sins come when they're monsters, not molehills, you know, when they're mountains, when they've affected the entirety of the person, and when the cutting out is the whole arm or the whole area. There is no peace in the church with sin. It is a constant war. Perry actually touched on just how effective or how impactful sin is, if not addressed. When I first came here the week before I preached, his sermon was on 1 Corinthians 11. And in that passage, it says, For anyone who eats or drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. For when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Christ will not lose us to our sins. But there is a lot of harm that comes to us and a lot of pain and grief when we let them remain and grow as they always do and will in our lives. So Christ says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To the church of Pergamum, which is brought back to the failures of their fathers, to the corruption and the straying of their fathers, they're also reminded of the steadfastness of God, the hidden manna, the manna which God gave 
consistently, faithfully, continually to his people when they had nothing. Truth is, sin often deceives us by thinking we can have it and God. It thinks that we can have the best of both worlds and it steals everything from us. Now, the white stone has roughly 10 different views on what that can mean. And so I'm not even going to try and explain what it is. And I don't think Scripture really seeks to. What I do think is remarkable is that just like the manna, it is God's gift. And it is personal, and it is individual, and it is focused on you. I think it points towards the relationship and the the purity and the commitment that he wants with us and that we should want with him. So finally, how in application, how do we apply the lesson and the, the command and the rebuke for this church in Pergamum? There's a couple questions we can ask ourselves. How How are we compromising as Christians? What are those quiet or those secret, those small or seemingly small ways? Maybe it's the music you listen to or the TV shows you watch. Maybe it's the commitment to sports or your career or to money or to your comfort. Maybe it's Avoiding feeling those things through alcohol, other means. What are the sins within yourselves and the sins within others that you know? And then how can you cut them out? How can you make the distinction of your life as a Christian be different? What needs to be cut out? The righteousness of a righteous life is something fought for. Sin is not a passive agency. It's active, seeking to consume like a roaring lion. And righteousness is not accidental. It comes with intentionality, sacrifice, and as Christ calls us to cutting off sometimes. The world should acknowledge and Satan should fear, fear the Christian church for the freedom it has and the purity it has, which no darkness can touch because we are separated from his control through Christ, through his word applied sharply to our lives to cut out those areas where he seeks to dwell and to rule in our lives and in the lives of our brothers and sisters. The word of Christ and the words we can give to each other can be what point us continually, which rebuke us and remind us and correct us 
and bind us ever faithfully to him, that we might receive life and food from his word and from his hand. You pray for me. Heavenly Father, this morning we pray that we might put to death the sins and the seductions in our lives. Lord, that we might seek to live and worship and worship you faithfully and purely in every way. That we might be living sacrifices to you. God, give us strength to rebuke and to cut off and to cut out the gray areas of our lives, the areas where the world draws us away from seeking you, those temptations and lust, those desires, those worldly desires, the desire for recognition and gain. God, give us a new strength in Jesus, to live contrary to this fallen world, to not be conformed or contained or controlled by this fallen world or the rule of Satan around us, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and of our hearts through, through you, Jesus, and your Holy Spirit and your word. Lord, that all we do might be an intentional love of what is good and pure and holy and a love for you. We pray these things through Jesus, our Savior. Amen.